Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. I'm Kelsey Henry. And I'm Emma Wathen. And it's our pleasure today to be in conversation with Professor Sandy Safian. Sandy is a professor of health humanities and history in the Department of Medical Education at University of Illinois Chicago and a professor of disability studies in UIC's Department of Disability and Human Development. Sandy, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thanks for inviting me. It's going to be fun. Definitely. So can you start by telling us about your path to disability studies and disability history? Did you come into academia with the expectation that you would be researching and teaching in disability studies and disability history? Or has your positioning within the field surprised you? Um, I did not come into the in, come into academia. Well, I I did come into my first position, my only position at UIC, um, doing disability history. But when I got my graduate uh, degree, I was doing Middle East history. So uh, I decided to do my dissertation on um, the history of infectious disease in mandatory colonial Palestine. Um, And through that, started to think about disability um, and land uh, and went, I had a postdoc in uh, Oregon and that was when the NEH Institute on Disability Studies at San Francisco State University uh, was held. So I applied and got in even though my background in disability studies at that point was very, pretty minimal. Um, but it was, tra- it was a transformative experience for me. Um, I think I was the only person who worked on a non-Western, even non-American context. Uh, but I got to meet some, you know, major fabulous disability historians, um, Paul Longmore, um, Kathy Kudlick. And so, yeah, that was a transformative experience for me. We read, I don't know, like 100 pages, 150 pages a day. <laughs> so um, it was a lot of like a dive into disability studies. Um, and it was just fabulous. And so I came out of that knowing that I wanted to do more disability history. Um, and used a lot of what I learned to inform the revisions of my dissertation for a book. Um, Even though I think that the book itself is probably more centrally situated, that first book, um, more centrally situated in the history of medicine, um, particularly history of colonial medicine. Um, And then once I finished that book and started thinking about my next projects, um, I moved more centrally into disability history. And by that point, I was already teaching disability history uh, to medical students from 2002 to probably 2008. So I had been teaching it Um, and really getting to know the literature and the scholarship in the field. Yeah. By the time I decided like, okay, 
it's time to write my disability history book. I, I knew people, you know, I was going to SDS and I was involved in the field, but I hadn't like written a central disability um, history monograph. I had written some articles already. Um, so that's how I came into it. So this is my first, this adoption book is the first book I've written on uh, disability history as a central, you know, as the main thing. We get a lot of historians of medicine on the podcast. Um, and I know Emma and I both are trained, at least in part, as historians of medicine. It's a fairly, as far as disability history goes, a fairly common or like well-traversed migratory path, even though that looks so different for each person. Let's hear a little bit more about your first big book-length foray into disability history. Sandy's most recent book publication uh, is titled Familial Fitness, Disability, Adoption, and Family in Modern America. It was published by University of Chicago Press in 2021. And we're really excited to talk with you about it today. You already mentioned um, when you were sharing with us your, your transit into disability history um, that you started with projects that were not situated in, an Amer in a U.S. American context. Uh, your first two books were Healing the Land and the Nation, Malaria and the Zionist Project in Mandatory Palestine, and Reapproaching the Border, New Perspectives on the Study of Israel-Palestine. You've said a little bit about what prompted this topical shift, um, or perhaps like a sub uh, a subdisciplinary shift towards disability history, but more specifically, how did you end up working on a project on disability and adoptive family building in 20th century America? Yeah, so the shift from Middle East to America was a huge one for me. Um, I mean, I had to learn American history by myself, so it took a long time. Um, you know, there's just the the overwhelming vastness of the scholarship in American history compared to Middle East is just, you know, took me for a loop. Um, but the ease in that it is all in English is terrific. That was a, that was much easier for me. So how did I get to adoptive family building um, and disability and adoptive family building? Actually, by way of considering issues around um, assisted reproductive technology and, uh, and biological family building and disability. Um, some uh, friendships that I had uh, at the time, these friends were really concerned about disability and their family building projects. And so I started to think about, you know, what is it like for, uh, in an adoptive case where you're making, I mean, the child's already born. So you're making decisions, uh, very explicit decisions about building a family um, in relation to disability. So that's pretty much how I came. It was sort of this you know, convergence of conversations I was having with friends 
And then, you know, just thinking about like, how, how can I think about this in more concrete terms? Um, and adoptive family building really was a, a great way to do it. Great. So let's dive into your book, uh, starting from right before the introduction. Uh, so you include this brief note on language uh, that we'd like to touch on with you just to give our listeners a little more context for some of the language you are using to describe your historical actors. So in your note, you introduce the term children labeled disabled, uh, a term that you use alongside disabled children and children with disabilities. So why did this feel like the most appropriate language uh, to use in some instances? Yeah, so the children labeled disabled um, has to do with the attribution of disability without impairment. So um, in, in terms of adoptive practices and policies around adoptability. So um, before World War II, um, children that had hereditary backgrounds, so they themselves may not have had an impairment, um, but they're, usually it was the mother. <laughs> um, yeah, usually it was the mother may have had mental illness or may, you know, may have had some sort of impairment, um, physical, mental, emotional, and or as we know with people with this sort of vast category of feeble mindedness, um, it really could be anything because <laughs> um, that's like the, the garbage can category for a ton of stuff, you know, including unmarried pregnancy, um, alcoholism, etc. So um, uh, the children born to these women and then placed, uh, placed for adoption are treated as though they have an impairment. In other words, they are excluded from uh, adoption eligibility, um, just like a child with an impairment would be. And so um, that attribution of disability risk um, for a successful or failed placement, usually the risk for failed placement, um, was considered very seriously. And so those children were not placed Overall, I mean, there were there were independent adoptions that had nothing to do with agencies. We can't really trace them, <laughs> so um, it's very difficult to know what happened in that sense. But um, through agencies, they were overall excluded. Now, after the war, um, for a variety of reasons, which I get into in the, I think it's the second chapter of my book. Um, there's a reconsideration of children labeled disabled. So those children with what were called pathological family histories or um, hereditary, pathological hereditary backgrounds, those children, there's sort of this opening up post-war to consider those children eligible. Not children with impairments, but children labeled disabled. So they're attributed that disability risk um, for this worry about failed placement. Um, and so that's why I use that language for those children, 
it's really to distinguish that from um, from children with with diagnosed impairments. At many points in your book, you're you're describing the the porosity of disability as a category, um, as a as yes. a racialized category, um, like yes. through this yeah through this concept. Um, I think the language that you used in the book was of like in the progressive era, pathological heredity. Uh, So yeah, the idea of projected or anticipated risks of disability in children who did not have um, documented impairments, but because of their familial makeup, their background, were seen as as being at risk for developing disability or having latent uh, disability, like disabled attributes. Um, I want to zero in on this concept of risk a little bit more because it's so central as a framework to your to the entirety of your book. Uh, each yeah. chapter looks at what you call adoption professionals' calculus surrounding adoptive family building that usually revolved around changing understandings of risk, especially the risk of disability that impacted a child's eligibility for adoption. So uh, a very helpful phrase that you used in the introduction to describe this was the risk adoption disability triad. And that really grounds each of your chapters in different ways. Um, so you already, you said a little bit about what disability risk looked like in the progressive era um, in terms of uh, this concept of pathological heredity. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about how risk assessment and mitigations against um, placing children who were considered to be uh, yeah, at risk for disability or already disabled um, among adoption professionals, how that risk assessment and that calculus changed over time. When I speak about the risk disability adoption triad, I'm playing off of what's considered in adoption studies, the adoption triad, not just in adoption studies, in adoption, um, the adoption triad, which is the biological mother, um, the adoptive parents and the child, okay? So it was a play off of that. What I'm saying is that there's other, there's this other triad that's happening at the same time. And what I wanted to do, I mean, the, the whole framing around risk comes from the discourse that I found in the archive in the documents. I I didn't really go in thinking that this was going to be framed around risk, Um, but it's it's a pervasive discussion for the entirety of the 20th century and even now. So uh, it became clear to me that I wanted to, to think about it. But, you know, in sociologies of risk, I don't know if you know this literature, but in, in, there's all literature on risk by sociologists, and it's very much one that sort of assumes a definition of risk and does not historicize risk at all. Um, and except for one wonderful sociologist named Deborah Lupton, whose work I love, um, she's a sociologist of health and medicine, 
And she makes this like small, uh, maybe it's not so small. She, she makes a claim that we need to historicize this concept. And so I took, while I was reading all this stuff about risk, I took that and thought, you know, this is a really important point and nobody has done that, that I have read. Um, there, there are some historical uh, books about risk um, and markets, financial markets, but in terms of medicine and health, I had, I had not seen anything that historicized this concept. It's just kind of taken as this, you know, you know what it means. So I wanted to do that in this book. Um, and it followed, that historicizing follows also the major substantive argument that I'm making in the book. Uh, which is the trajectory argument around um, the adoption of children with disabilities, being going from being excluded at the beginning of the century to partially included at the end of the century. Um, so that history of risk and disability risk as it relates to placement, uh, adoptive placement, and whether or not an adoptive placement will fail or succeed, failure being that parents will return the child. There's a big fear of that um, throughout the whole 20th century, or that, uh, which would not be good for the child and also wouldn't be good for the agency, but, um, or anybody involved, frankly. Um, so there's a big uh, worry about failed placement. So the risk is related to that. And the way that <clears throat> disability is considered um, a central player in predicting failed placement. Um, so the way that risk gets uh, taken up at different periods of time that I sort of look at through that throughout that trajectory argument um, has to do with the idea that risk is sort of pre pre-war risk is part of the child's makeup like they are the risky ones um and uh then in the 60s 70s late 60s um there's a, an opening up uh not only for adoptability of children with disabilities meaning children with impairments, but risk starts to get transformed or discussions around risk start to get transformed into um, that, that the child is not inherently risky like they were seen before the war. Now they're, it's the social conditions that produce the risks for the child. Um, and so that's sort of a liberalization of the idea of risk. Um, but it follows and is consistent with adoption practices that become more liberal around considering children with disabilities. And then towards the, well, during the 80s with Reagan, particularly, <laughs> and the, um, the moral maturity and just, you know, this total change to uh, conservatism in the 80s, there's a reversion. Uh, in some respects, not completely, but 
but there is some reversion to thinking of children as damaged, children as risky. Um, and there's a sort of and or, right? So uh, they are themselves risky, but they're also at risk. So there's an at risk uh, that happens in the 80s and into the 90s. Um, so there's these two things that are happening at the same time. Um, and that again follows the, the foster care crisis and, um, and sort of the welfare queen AIDS crisis uh, discussions, right? And sort of the re-biologization of society and re and of society, yeah, and and culture in America, um, and and it also follows, to be honest, um, this more medicalized version of reproduction. So, um, what do I mean by that? Um, there's IVF, right? Um, there there's abortion. So these are two things actually that impact the way that adoption changes. Demographic changes are really important as well. Now, I mean, there's huge foster care needs, but um, single mothers start keeping their children or they don't have unwanted pregnancies. That puts adoption agencies sort of on the defensive, um, at the, which is why they open up eligibility for parents. Um, so there's just a whole range of things that are happening all at the same time. But thinking about uh, disability and risk or the risk adoption disability triad is a conceptual framework that grounds the entire project. It comes up in every chapter. Now I'd like to zoom in on how this discourse around risk um, has transformed specifically uh, between or, or during World War II uh, and how adoption practices follow. So we, we talked a little bit earlier about how fears of pathological heredity and eugenic sentiment excluded children labeled disabled from adoption, like from the progressive era through World War II. Uh, but then during World War II or right after World War II, you characterize uh, this, this post-war period as one where adoption agencies expanded the criteria of child eligibility to be more inclusive. Can you say more, not only about the shifting ideological and conceptual factors, but also about some of the economic, demographic, and reproductive trends that prompted this broadening of adoptability in the post-war period? Sure, and also about risk, right? Um... So the post-war period, adoption professionals uh, take on a discourse of what I call risk equivalence, which is that um, now remember, it's still it's still children with with what is called pathological family histories, uh, pathological heredity. Um, these are the children that are, are being debated as to whether or not they should be included now and not excluded. Not children with impairments, that comes later. Not much later, but a bit later. So um, in order to have parents become open to adopting children 
labeled disabled children with pathological family histories, um, agencies start using this idea of like, well, uh, adoptive parents need or candidates need to be just as open as biological parents. Like biological parents don't get to choose what kind of child they have. They might have a child with, you know, with an actual impairment, <laughs> um, and they don't they don't choose, right? So adoptive parents can't be that picky. They need to start uh, opening up their ideas to what kinds of children they they will they can be matched with. So, and this has to do with like uh, pre-war ideas around matching, where whereby parents would say, or candidates would say, parent candidates would say, I want a girl ages two to four. I want, she has to have blue eyes and blonde hair. I mean, literally, you can, you can go to the archive and see these kinds of requests. Um, and there's an idea that intellect, there has to be intellectual matching. So somehow you, you give an IQ test to an infant, I don't know, or a toddler, and you assess their IQ and you match them with, you know, whatever socioeconomic, uh, bracket the adoptive family or candidate family is from. So there's there's a lot of matching, strict stricter matching that's based on um, what people, what the kids look like and what you look like because it was all a secret. You didn't want to reveal that you had an adoptive child, so you wanted somebody to, you wanted your child to look like you and have the have the capacity to have the same aspirations as you might intellectually or in terms of careers. So there's a lot of like predictions that are happening here um and then post-war uh there are i mean it's the baby boom right um and so because of the baby boom um and also you know economic prosperity in america for the most part for the most part for white middle-class families there's suburbanization uh etc so these are um there's the beginning of way more candidate uh, applicants, sorry, um, to apply to to be parents, and there's so there's a glut on that end, but not enough children that would fit the parameters of what's acceptable, right? So um, that's when agencies start to say, you know, you're just gonna you can't be so picky. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to accept the same risks as biological parents. So it sort of follows with those demographic changes, if that makes sense. And that follows alongside uh, changes in patterns around reproduction post-war. That makes sense. I am so fascinated by this concept of risk equivalence. Especially given like what you were saying about when you first got into this project, at least in part, you were thinking about colleagues who were working on histories of assisted reproductive technologies, scholarship on reproductive technology, and family building. And 
uh, these concepts of risk and choice and um, intention in family building that were made more accessible by advancements in reproductive technology. If at one point in the history of adoption and family building, you had adoption professionals really uh, sending out a message that adoptive parents should be willing to assume the same risks as biological parents and that you never know what kind of child you're going to get. So there's this sort of like liberalization of uh, practices around family building and adoption in the post-war era, at least somewhat. And then I wonder if like part of the story that you're gesturing at, like with the advent of more advanced assisted reproductive technologies, um, that's the rise of more risk aversion, because now there's technology to facilitate um, the management and mitigation of risk. Um, so yeah. I just think this is of such disability. A of disability. Yeah. I have more familiarity with the history of uh, assisted reproductive technologies and the history of adoption. Before I read your book, I didn't understand the connection between these two histories. But I see... Yeah. Really, when you think about risk, like it's it's very clear um, the continuity and the conversation between these two different kinds of family building. Absolutely, and so actually, post War II, in the history of of reproduction, there's an increase in um, insemination. That I mean, there's no risk mitigation there uh, in the same way, but. But that is one of the beginnings of assisted reproduction, right? Um, and then, you know, in terms of sort of present day mitigation of risk um, through pre-implantation genetic screening, um, you know, gene editing, uh, eventually, um, there's, there's absolutely this intentional mitigation of risk. Um, and what's interesting in the in the assisted reproduction case is that uh, because it's not regulated in the United States, which still just makes me like shiver. Um, I can't believe there's no it's it's self regulated through a physician association, um, but. A lot of the bioethical conversations turn to uh, stating, let's look at adoption as the model for how to regulate assisted reproduction uh, in the current day. And literally, like they say, we should look to adoption um, to think about how to regulate this. Because, I mean, it's, it's kind of an ironic twist, right? But um, there's George Annis. He's an ethicist. He's at Northwest. He used to be at Northwestern, at least. Um, so he's a big guy who writes on assisted reproduction. And he wrote a very important ethics kind of document. Um, and he explicitly says, like, we need to look at the history of adoption and look at the changes in the regulation around uh, adoptive family building to help us think through these kinds of ethical issues. So they're really, I mean, it would be great for somebody to do that kind of work to put the two together. Yeah. It's, that's a huge project, but yeah. 
really your this book opens that door like wide open which is really exciting for for future scholarship the projects that are going to build on your work yeah hopefully hopefully um I mean I was overwhelmed with what I had to do on this adoption book so that um it was considered in the background but it wasn't my central you know the assisted reproduction um except for the 80s with I, the introduction of IVF where I really needed to to think more about it um but I think it's become even more interestingly tied together in the current situation and also the hierarchy right so that people try for self biological children then they really go to assisted reproduction and then they go they almost like choose adoption as a as a last resort in many ways not everybody but a lot of people that was not the situation in the 50s that just wasn't the situation really i mean through the through the 70s even because of the lack of technology you know and a variety of other reasons but yeah i mean it's so fascinating to think about how advancements in reproductive technology um reorganized sort of the, the hierarchy um or the way that you were describing it sort of plan a plan b plan c of family building um that really yeah. um, maintained the primacy of biological kinship through through technological me- means. Dorothy Roberts has written an article about the primacy of the genetic tie that's really important here. Um but also it is about disability risk. So people will say I want to do IVF because then I will know where the child is like I will have control over my body and what I put in my body and you know whatever um or in surrogacy the same thing you know the the adoptive mother per se is the one um who can oversee and set some rules and parameters around the the caring mother uh gestational mother so like there's this idea of controlling the outcome um that i think plays a huge role in the hierarchization of of that yeah this is a little bit of a pivot but i thought it could be helpful like historically thinking like world war 2 post war moments to talk a little bit more about who was in the room when it came to assessing children for disability risk and constructing adoptability as a quality that was measurable so you mentioned in the book that there were mm-hmm. doctors uh geneticists psychologists uh, psychiatrists who became more involved in adoption protocols and practices post world war 2 um i'm curious about uh the professional networks of different kinds of experts who were weighing in on adoptability and disability risk and did different different kinds of adoption professionals assess risk differently or perhaps have different priorities when assessing either a child's fitness for adoption or a parent's fitness for becoming an adoptive parent it's a great question um and a difficult one i think so post war 
there is a proliferation around who is in the room as compared to pre-war. So there are anthropologists that are asked to consult uh, on mixed race children um, about their genetic background and sort of, um, you, I mean, this is, this is in keeping with the development of anthropology as a, as a discipline as well, but sort of what are the origins of these mixed race children and the physicians and psychologists, I think, have similar kinds of assessments of risk. Um, they're drawing from uh, child development studies. They're drawing from um, ideas around IQ being a little bit more fungible, uh, starting with the slow consideration of environment um, and love, eventually. Uh, ideas around love. Um, there are studies by Harlow, for example, around um, uh, around monkeys um, and the the absent mother or the present mother and what counts as a mother. Um, uh, there's John Bowlby and maternal theories around maternal deprivation. These are huge have huge influences upon adoption considerations around risk. Um, so caseworkers are, are not, I mean, they're, they're deferring to these experts, right? This is also like a, a huge expert kind of time, um, belief in experts, reliance upon experts. Um, but they're also, um, and there's professionalization of social work, I should say, that happens pre-war, but also uh, post-war. Um, so they themselves are gaining more legitimacy as a field, social workers, um, and they're interested in um, the home, right, as a possible environment, maybe more so than uh, physicians. So I would say that there's slight differences, but I would not say that there, I didn't sense that there were major differences, let's put it that way. And for agencies, um, they wanted to take in all of, into consideration all of, all of those uh, reports or ideas uh, towards assessing who should be included or excluded, which children should be included or excluded. And that's a great segue to the next question that I wanted to ask you about this, this trend of inclusion. So you characterize the period from about 1955 to 1980 as years when adoption professionals, parents, uh, and state and federal governments increasingly affirmed the adaptability of disabled children and strived to find families for them. So what did this greater commitment to inclusion look like in practice, at the level of addressing, you know, parental attitudes, a disability stigma, and also at the policy level. Right. This is a really important period of time. It's also a huge amount of time. <laughs> but uh, so there is, there is the consideration 
of children with impairments, children with disabilities, um, to be included in adoption. Um, and this means sort of thinking through how agencies were going to attract certain parents. So they open up uh, their, not right away, but there are like openings, this slow opening process of who, uh, of which applicants they're going to consider. Um, at the same time, risk gets uh, relocated outside of the, the bodies of children onto environmental influences. Um, there are uh, like Sunday child, Wednesday's child kinds of um, photo listings of children whereby um, children are intentionally talked about as whole people or not just their disability. And this is a way to um, integrate ideas around humanity that children with disabilities are humans um, and have a humanity to them. Um, and therefore parents should consider them. Um, and then there's the sort of concrete, which is what you're talking about in terms of policies. So there's just a huge number of changes in casework um, practices and uh, state and federal policies. So uh, uh, there's the emergence of specialized um, agencies for what's called special needs children. Um, that includes that. So before that, they, it's the same groups, but they're called hard to place. Um, and this includes twins, siblings, older children, um, minority, what's called minority children, um, and children with disabilities, or what's called handicapped children. Um, and those, those subcategories still exist, but they're recalled special needs and um, meaning special needs for placement, meaning that the agency, that these children have needs for the agencies to facilitate their placement, um, to be more specific. Uh, so the agencies need to do training programs for caseworkers so that they are trying to work against dis disability stigma so that caseworkers will start to really seriously consider these children uh, for placement. Um, there's the permanency planning movement, which is a, a movement of mostly parents, some physicians and psychologists around um, the, the idea that permanent families, having a permanent family is important for the well-being of children. Um, and this comes about because of foster, what's called foster drift. Um, there's the foster care crisis, right, in the 70s, which really is becomes huge in the age of, of reporting of abuse and neglect in, in the 70s. Um, and there are policies, there, there are subsidies, right? Um, so there's maintenance and medical, uh, medical cost subsidies to incentivize 
um, parent applicants to accept children uh, with disabilities in their home. Um, there are, I mean, I could go on and on and on, right? There's um, the incentivization or the, there's the ability for children a little bit later than uh, in 1980, the ability of children on um, welfare to continue Medicaid, to continue on welfare and Medicaid when they're adopted because the foster care system pays the foster care parents. But once the child is adopted, it used to, before that, used to be that those parents would lose their medic, the child's Medicaid um, and any assistance, right? Subsistence assistance. So there was, I mean, nobody could afford it. <laughs> um, there's also, uh, you know, single, single women, um, single men, um, divorced people. Um, these were all people that were excluded from adoption uh, in terms of parenting, um, that agencies start to liberalize their policies and start to accept these, these kinds of parents. So there's a, a big opening in who can uh, be eligible as a parent to adopt as well. It's a huge flourishing of, of massive <laughs> cultural shifts and, uh, and policies and practices that change to accommodate those shifts. I wanna linger a little bit longer on this shift towards uh, greater inclusivity when it came to who qualified as an adoptable child um, in the post-war period um, and how this precipitated shifts in adoption policy and rhetoric um, regarding what constituted a viable adoptive family. This was so interesting to me, um, like the ways that race, class, and disability status of prospective adoptive parents shaped whether adoption professionals could see an organic match between a disabled child and an adoptive family, that perhaps a disabled child would be a better match or a natural fit with a disabled parent. And But there were also anecdotes yeah. about matching disabled children with non-white parents like the way that race and class was factoring into the way that uh, the way that matches were being made. So the idea that disabled parents would be acceptable, that comes much later. Yeah. That's like the 80s to 97. Um, that isn't that isn't the 55 to 80 time. I, I found this fabulous letter from the Little People of America uh, head, I think she was, um, saying we have people at our conference that are coming who are interested in adoption and please consider them. You know, are there any children that um, have dwarfisms, what they used to call it? And so, you know, we, we have very qualified uh, applicants who who would be great matches. Now, I, I don't know what happened to that. I don't have any follow-up letter. Um, but the fact that was like in the 60s. 
to that's pretty early. So, I mean, to me, that was a surprise and an exciting surprise. Somebody who could do like a, a more localized uh, history might be able to find more examples of that, I think. But the, but the idea that disabled parents would actually be ideal comes uh, much later. Um, the idea of, okay, so there's also the background that I don't get into as much in this book because there's so much work on it already um, uh, in adoption history on, on race and the place of race and adoption, right? But there are transracial in between 55 and 80, um, particularly in the late 60s is really when things take off, right? Um, uh, there are programs to facilitate transracial adoption. Um, and that is because there are you know, this growing population of children in foster care uh, who, and or, you know, just not in foster care, um, who need, need families, need permanent uh, families. Um, and so, uh, you know, where are they gonna get these parents from, right? But they're also not considering uh, families of color very seriously. At, and so the like the black social worker statement, that's a huge watershed moment in the history of adoption, um, whereby um, they say, look, you know, you're not really looking at black families as, as good candidates for black children. Um, and instead you are placing these children with white families and that's like an emigration out um, and it's not good for their mental health and their identity, et cetera. So the, after that, there's a huge shift in adoption practice to con really to not consider white families and to consider black families, um, much more black parents, much more seriously. Um, so there's all of that going on. The same is happening with sort of the, the Indian Adoption Project, which is to place uh, Native American children with white families. And then after the Black Social Workers Association statement, there is the Native American uh, tribe say, hey, we don't want this out migration of children um, and we should have sovereignty over our own tribe and what happens to our children and that ends up in ICWA. So these are, these are things that are happening um, not about disability, but definitely about special needs children because they have special needs for placement. I don't remember which chapter this was in, and it might have been an instance where something was being discussed in theory that didn't trickle down into practice. But I feel like you referenced they were an adoption professional, some sort of a specialist who was speculating about whether or not, um, like around this this uh, subject of matching and fitting children with families, that perhaps a child with emotional or, or behavioral disturbances would be less disruptive in a working class. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Black environment, sure. as opposed to like a white middle class environment. Yes, that's okay. right. 
So, um, yeah, there's a, a kind of a, maybe I'm overstating this, a flurry of studies around uh, in the late 60s. Franklin and Masaryk is what you're talking about. And then there's another, um, there's another study by Chamberlain, I think, um, about uh, who are the best, who are the parents that will adopt children with disabilities, right? And what they find is it's actually not the typical family they're thinking that's so ideal for all children. Um, the white middle class family, you know, intact heterosexual family, um, but rather those families that are um, sort of have what would be considered a disqualifying character to them um, previously. So um, they might be, it might be a single woman. It might be um, not middle class maybe lower middle class, or even, um, you know, not, I, not poverty, but um, working class, right? Um, these are the, the groups of parents that had not been seriously considered until this time, when there is really um, starting to be more and more kids going into foster care, and also the opening of considering children with impairments, children with disabilities uh, in the late 60s of, uh, you know, for, for consideration for adoption at all. Um, so that's the 60s. There is a flurry of studies to say like, who is it that's gonna do this? And they find that the, the highly educated um, white family actually doesn't want a child with a disability, or if they're gonna consider it, there's a hierarchy of what they would consider in terms of disability. I think that's what you're talking about, that study, correct? It's a very famous study. There's two parts to the Franklin Masaryk uh, study. And then later, there's more studies about, again, who, who's going to adopt these children, and they, they look at those studies to decide who then to recruit for these children. So um, that's a little bit later. Uh, but the agencies then take the results of those studies and say, hey, you know, we can consider all these different parents. In fact, those are the ones that we should actually recruit because they're going to be much more open and willing to adopt these children with disabilities. Yeah, expanding on this um, this influx that you mentioned of you know more adopted children are coming from the foster care system by the 1970s, uh, specifically within some of the communities you mentioned. So you know before the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed in 1978, you have uh, some estimates uh, estimate close to like 35 percent of Native American children are being removed from their families and put into uh, like foster care and adoption in institutions. Um, so I was wondering, how did this shift in adoption demographics and particularly the disproportionate number of children of color in foster care 
impact conceptualizations of risk, disability, and adoptability in child welfare and practice during this time period? So changes in um, demographics significantly affect um, the discourses around risk and adoption practices um, and policy. The crisis in foster care, what happens is that there's what's called foster drift, which um, is when children go from foster care home to foster care home to foster care home because they're in foster care for so long and either they can't be um, reunified with their family or they are not adopted yet. So there's also this whole issue of what's called waiting children. Um, so, you know, they, the relinquishment has to be gotten by the biological mother. And so if there is a problem getting relinquishment, legal relinquishment, the child is sort of sitting on foster care. Um, so there's that whole problem. And this, I mean, these are the politics of foster care. But, but as that's happening, um, there's a shift to say that, that the foster care system itself is, caught, is a risk factor for disability for these children because they will have acquired disabilities, emotional mostly, um, some mental, but uh, you know they're acquiring disabilities while they are in the foster care system because of the inadequacies of the bureaucracies and you know just the, the whole politics around which they are coming into the foster care system. Um, so there's that. In the 80s, there's the AIDS crisis. So you have um, children that are called uh, chronic, chronic care children, or children with chronic care needs. Many of them are AIDS orphans who might have a, um, HIV. Um, still, again, you have all this divestment. You know, Reagan's just whole thing <laughs> to himself that causes so many issues. Um, so uh, there, there are um, new kinds of children that are coming into the foster care system, which creates a real push uh, of adoption agencies to focus what's called on special needs adoption. So like that becomes a huge focus on the policy side, um, and it's given that name. Um, so there are shifts in, around risk, being at risk, having structural and systemic issues, producing risk, um, as opposed to the children having inherent risk. At the same time, there is the pathologization of poverty which kind of allows some agencies and some adoption professionals to say that these children are inherently at risk, uh, risky or damaged. And there's a whole cultural discourse in the Reagan era around that, um, particularly children of color. So that's when those things get, they're, they're sort of sitting at the same time. Um, uh, those concept, those two conceptions around risk. Um, and you know, this, this causes shifts in policies. Uh, 
there's the Adoption Assistance uh, Act in 1980, which federalizes subsidies um, incentives for uh, parents to adopt children with disabilities, but also any special needs, uh, what's called special needs children. Um, there are uh, more uh, intensified kinds of training programs and projects for caseworkers. Um, there are, there's the emergence of um, masters of social work programs that are particularly focused on special needs adoptions um, where people get specific training. Um, so there's a slew of kinds of responses. Um, and there's also federal acts that start to allow agencies to place children um, of color in white families again if they cannot find, only after they cannot find. Uh, a family of color to place these children with uh, because they, they there's just so many children. <laughs> yeah, kind of building on this question about shifts in adoption demographics towards um, disproportionately being children who are coming out of the foster care system, which are disproportionately children of color, Black children. I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more, both like pre-1970s and 1980s? I mean, you can't, you can give us a little bit of a prehistory, but if you want to stay in the 70s and 80s, you're welcome to, about the close proximity between children of color and disabled children in what was first the hard to place category that became the special needs category. Can you say a bit more about how children of color and disabled children were not mutually exclusive categories in the realm of adoption, um, but were actually really uh, co-constituted. Sure. So, I mean, that's really in the 70s and 80s that that starts to, I think, solidify. Um, but certainly the hard to place, I mean, it's all the same children, older um, siblings, minority children, handicapped children. I, I, I do have a little section in the book about how, uh, at least, you know, this book is a national level book. So it's, it's um, very broad speaking, I would say. And, and therefore it was very difficult to know, uh, like I didn't go through agency records where I went through rosters that showed me which kids were what, right? Um, I wasn't looking at that specific, those specifics. I think that work still needs to be done. It has to be done per agency. Like it, it's it's a it's a hard thing to do. First of all, to gain access to that stuff. Um, but um, I tried to gain access to some, um, but wasn't successful. Uh, in any case, I was trying to figure out. If a child was categorized as a child, a minority child, did they have a disability? Could they have a disability as well, right? And from what I can gather, if you were categorized as a, a minority child, you did not have a disability. You were a, what was considered a healthy minority child. And then handicapped children uh, were children of all colors, of all ages, um, who were 
disabled. So their their main characteristic was being disabled. Um, They could be siblings, but if they were, if they had a disability, they were considered handicapped. Same for special needs. Now where they're, where it's, it's, it's interesting as a historian is that um, the policies around special needs adoption, the policies around the, the programs that are, that are created, the specialized adoption agencies, these are for that entire group, uh, that entire class of children, special, uh, special needs children, what's called special needs for placement children because they all have special needs for placement. Sometimes a little bit different, but on the whole, um, in general, it's harder to find parents for them, uh, applicants who want them, Um, which is a huge, uh, you know, this is a major problem that's even today, um, is finding parents who will do, who will adopt them. so a lot of their history, their policy histories are the same. Not entirely. There are more programs for children of color, um, from what I can gather. There's certainly more scholarships about those programs. Um, but, but I mean, these laws are, are all addressed to this huge category, uh, big category of, of children. Um, so they're not really disaggregated. And then when, particularly in the 80s, when you have such a racialized cultural discourse and um, a discourse around damage and fitness and those intersections, I mean, you might have what, what's considered a healthy minority child who ends up in foster care and then acquires an emotional disability, right? And so then they're both. So in that way, they're co-constituted simply by virtue of being exposed to similar kinds of systems. Yeah, no, that is uh, both fascinating and and um, disheartening to hear about this sometimes, like this erasure of of race within this category of uh, of what we call handicapped children, as well as some this sometimes this lack of recognition of the the way in which these categories might intersect and then how that lack of recognition might have impacted these children. And I think that speaks to maybe um, some of the limitations, uh, even within this period of greater inclusivity um, that, that we were talking about. So um, you mentioned uh, that by the end of the 1990s, that the possibilities for inclusion were still partial. Uh, And in chapter four, you write, professionals framed the adoption of children with disabilities as a personal and private mission for parents rather than a broader societal concern. Can you say more about the persistent barriers, both structural and conceptual that limited the possibility of inclusion? Yeah. I mean, you know, so a lot of these training programs, for example, for social workers, it's like addressing, you know, disability stigma for caseworkers or um, trying to reframe children's 
um, attributes, if they have disabilities, um, in a way that's sort of like, they're like every child kind of thing. It's very individualistic, right? So there, there's an appeal to parents and an appeal to caseworkers um, to address, you know, stigma, which is a serious thing, but it still leaves the idea that it's your choice if you want to have these children in your family or not. And that makes sense because we have a very individualized idea around family building. But if we were to look at sort of social and structural kinds of um, policies to, or barriers even, um, we would want to think about healthcare <laughs> um, and addressing healthcare and access to healthcare, right, for families, um, particularly in the 80s and 90s, this is pre-ACA, um, you know, just the ability to have access to medical care for children with disabilities is really important uh, for making it possible to, um, to have parents even want to have these children and raise them. So, and it's, it's not so different for biological children, right? Because a lot of times these um, biological parents are putting their kids up for adoption if they have a disability because they can't afford to, they can't afford the insurance or they're, they're dropped from their insurance, right? So it's, it goes both ways. So if you wanted to make uh, address um, equity, and access, for example, with healthcare, you would want the caseworkers and the adoption agencies to be advocates for universal care, but they're not. They very much frame this as uh, about the adoption triad, the biological mother, the parent, the applicants, and the child. They, um, you know, certainly some of them could be disability rights advocates. I don't know, you know, in particular, but there's no, I didn't find any evidence of like, um, you know, mention of kind of social movement uh, pushes in the adoption literature, in adoption files, I mean, adoption agency files, or Child Welfare League of America files, right? It's very much about your client, the child, um, parents, the biological mother. Um, so I think that's what I meant is sort of, you know, if you're not addressing these wider structural issues, the problem's still gonna remain because it's really about how do we think about, and I write this in the epilogue, like I really see the family and access to family as a disability right. So it's not just transportation and employment, which are really important things, but it's access to family. I mean, that's the beginning of any acceptance of people with disabilities in America. That's the first point of, of entryway. And if we don't have that, and we can't think about ways to address that issue, I'm not sure how our adult, our children and adults 
with disabilities can ever be like fully accepted in our society. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I, I think it's a serious issue. So, um, you know, it, the reason why I, I say that the trajectory is a partial inclusion, it ends with partial inclusion, is because we haven't addressed this issue of access to family. And what does that mean? What do we need? What supports do we need to have access to family whereby children with disabilities are considered just as great as any other child to have in your family? Um, it's still left up to the parents, the parent applicants to kind of decide. And, and even now it's left up to biological parents. So like the biological mother now um, for many years, not just recently, um, has the has the ability to decide the adoptive parents, right? So um, she may have a prejudice against disabled applicants. The agency can't discriminate under the ADA in adoption, domestic adoption, but the birth mother can, right? So if it's yeah, so I think that's what I was talking about. It's like, it's still kind of an individualized thing. And, and it's because we think of the, the family as the private sphere. But I think what adoption does is show us how it's not just the private sphere. There are major public ramifications and, and it's really, it's a public sphere issue. Things can totally change as the government policies change, like we see with this proliferation in the 70s, and then Reagan comes and he undermines it all, right? So like, how do we, how do we square that? It's not sustainable. I loved the way that you were drawing these connections between access to family as a disability right, like inclusion, uh, the extent to which disabled children, disabled people are included in families and considered in family building reflects fairly comprehensively on their access to social and political citizenship that this that the family um that perhaps it makes sense historically and contemporarily to downscale our, our analysis somewhat and look mm -hmm. to the family as um a battleground in which social and political citizenship is being contested from childhood, from from birth. I thought that that was such a such a brilliant argument. And I think that it ties into um, one of your most provocative claims that, uh, and this is a direct quote, the story of disability and adoption uncovers how disability operates as a fundamental category in the making of the American family. Uh, mm -hmm. That the story helps us rethink what constitutes the American family itself. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what, what is it about the figure of the disabled child, particularly the inclusion or exclusion of a non-biological disabled child in adoptive family building that reveals the internal logic and also the limits of love and kinship and belonging in the 20th century that extends far beyond a history of adoptive family building that says so much about the family um, in America in the 20th century. Yeah, I mean, I think as notions of 
of the American family and who can be constituted in an American family um, change in over the 20th century, we see the concomitant uh, liberalization of adoptability, of the concept of adoptability. So they go hand in hand. Um, it's just a really concrete way and case to look at it, I think. Um, I, I mean, I, I absolutely believe that this is a study around belonging in a family. So pre-World War II, and you know what, even now, I don't know. I don't know, this is like a, a little vignette, but when people have children, there is always, almost always, a, um, like when you see the child and the parents, there's a, like a push of certain people to say like, oh, they have your eyelashes. Oh, they have your fingers. Oh, they have, and I, I, I hate that. <laughs> it's like a pet peeve because what it means is that in order to belong in the family, they have to have some sort of physical resonance or physical similarity. And that was, that's what pre-war, pre-Second World War adoption matching was all about, right? Is that you had to look like your parents. Um, like it's almost mandated. Uh, and even when sometimes I'll look and I'll say like, they don't, they really don't look like their parents and that's okay. They don't have to look like their parents. They don't have to be like their parents. They can be themselves, right? Um, but we don't, we still don't really allow for that uh, very well, I would say, um, culturally. Um, and so by tracing these kinds of, uh, this notion of who is eligible to be in a family, um, what parents, which parents are eligible to adopt, right? We see a sort of very um, grounded intentionality, right, to this family building that I do think helps us really think about who is belonging in an American family um, and what, what's the ideal versus what's the reality. Um, and even, you know, there are, there is also the, this genetic tie thing, right? So there's an assumption that it's best to be with your biological family. And that, I mean, that's okay. Sometimes it is great to be with your biological family, but sometimes biological families suck. <laughs> and so, you know, sometimes it's not best to be with your, like, you know, there are cases when it's not best. Um, and I think we have to just allow children and parents of whatever kind, you know, our, our current debates around gay uh, citizens being parents um, and the laws, state laws around that. <clears throat> that's all about, you know, who are we allowing 
to belong in what we picture as a family um, and and for what reasons what reason um, and I do think like this this history of love where love fits in the family and who's giving love and who's receiving love is also really important and that also changes and we see that in um, adoption discussions uh, very explicitly. That's how I see this book sort of having import outside of adoption. So this is taking a bit of a pivot here. Uh, but earlier in our interview, at the beginning of our interview, you mentioned Paul Longmore being one of the first figures you encountered on your journey into disability history and in your epilogue, you mentioned that your book is dedicated to him in part because of his defense of historical work that provides a usable past to people with disabilities in the hopes of creating more accessible futures for them. Can you say more yeah. about how your work might provide a usable past for disabled children, adoptive parents, and adoption policymakers? Um, I think it has to do with providing models around programs that facilitate, like that second part of the book, that facilitate the adoption of children with disabilities or the integration of disabled children into family, biological families, the considerations that, and the calculations um, that Kelsey, uh, that, that term that you're using, the calculations that are happening, these are calculations that still happen. Um, and we can look at how those calculations are contingent, right? Um, contingent of time, place, uh, you know, pre-war, post-war um, technologies, uh, divestment, investment, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, a whole, it's a multi-layered kind of thing. Um, which made this book very difficult to write, I should say, just keeping all the layers up in the air at the same time um, and considered. So, uh, you know, considering all these categories of children together, what does that mean? How does that help us? How does that not help us? Um, so that's, that's what I meant. Um, but also Paul was a very special person to me. So he was, um, um, I was very close with him. He was one of my first disability mentors and he was, sorry, um, he was the first person who really said like, Sandy, this book is important. I got a lot of like, what are you talking about? You know, I started this project in oh, 2008. Nobody was working on family at all in disability history. Um, I was a Middle Eastern historian. So like, what am I doing trying to do American history? But he was just like, you can do it. And I spoke to him every day from the archives. And I would say like, oh my God, you're not going to believe it. I found something by... Bill Cosby was the, was the person who, the like celebrity for uh, Family Builders of Adoption, which was this adoption um, program specifically for 
disabled children. And he would be like, be very careful around Bill Cosby, you know. Um, but I was, I would sort of process all the documents every night when I came back to my hotel from the archive of him. And so that's also why I dedicated it to him. And as he was right, this is an amazing book. Um, and and if a, a giant like Paul Longmore says that it's amazing, I think that that makes it even more amazing. Well, he said it before I wrote a word, <laughs> so he didn't. You know, he just thought, "Oh, this is a this is a good topic. This is going to be this is has has fruitful potential." Let's put it that way. You know, he he didn't get to see this book published. I can't remember if he if he even read anything that I I don't think he saw even the manuscript. And yet his legacy is so present in, in this book in in the way that you're thinking about a usable past um, and the way that like what you were saying about how the study of history encourages us to think about contingency. And what's so brilliant about thinking carefully about contingency and the ways that the risk adoption disability triad, for example, and the calculus surrounding that, um, all of the different contingent, historically contingent and conditional factors that went into reshaping the relationship between those categories over time is a fantastic um, springboard for thinking otherwise, like drawing attention to contingency historically um, for policymakers, um, disabled parents, um, uh, disabled people in the present, encourages us to think about how could things be conceived of differently because they have been conceived of differently. I think that's one of the most important things that history does for us is drawing yeah. attention, this relationship between historical contingency and contingencies in the present that we can reimagine and reconfigure these relationships. Yes, absolutely. And I also, um, I, I wanted towards the end of writing this book, which was a very long process. <laughs> um, I wanted uh, to sort of make a case that this is a history that matters. Like you would think, oh, it's some small little thing. But this is like for, for children with disabilities who have been adopted, who maybe are now adults or even teenagers or whatever, um, for uh, adoptive parents who have adopted disabled children, like they have a history. There is a history to this, right? And they're not just these individual uh, units um, or you know lists. They are part of this much larger project around what what an American family looks like, and and what their place in that is. That they do have, like you like you were saying, Kelsey. They have a place in social citizenship, right? Um, and they. Yeah, we need to name it explicitly and and analyze it explicitly. And Paul was just, I mean, that was him. He just used a lot of jokes and <laughs> had a good sense of humor more than me. But he, you know, that was what he was fighting for. I am so certain that he would have been so, so proud of this book. 
Thank you. Sandy, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. I I have learned so much in dialogue with you. I can't wait to publish this. Really quickly, um, is there anything else exciting on the horizon, like new projects of any kind that you want to share with our listeners uh, before we we say goodbye? I am actually using my historical skills in clinical research right now, which is totally odd. <laughs> um, uh, so for the, I would say the past five years, I've been working on uh, sexual reproductive health issues for women with chronic illness um, and having their input into what are priorities for them um, to study and to research. And so from that work, um, I'm working right now on menopause and lung function, but also menopause and just all these different things that we have. (laughs) Um, And uh, doing a lot of qualitative interviewing um, and trying to get, get insight into how, first of all, the concept of quality of life is much larger and includes things beyond what quality of life researchers talk about. Um, but um, I'm really interested in, in embodied knowledge of these women um, and what kind of experiential expertise they offer us um, and how that can be put towards studying things like menopause. I'm finishing up a study on menstruation um, and chronic illness. Um, So that's kind of what I'm doing. I'm I'm learning, you know, how to do clinical research, which is totally different beast, but needs historical skills, I have found. Um, It really does Um, in this weird application, but (laughs) it needs it. Because we, we think of different kinds of questions than clinical researchers. And so it's really helpful to be at the table. Um, but then my, if, you know, if and when I'm ready to return to traditional historical projects, I really would like to do this. I've done all the research for the adoption science book. I, I literally just have to sit down and, and write it and learn history of psychiatry and psychology mostly um but because it's it's very steeped in that yeah so I have all the I have all the documents it's just kind of waiting to have the time to do that yeah so I'm trying to to you know intervene with disability history and disability studies kinds of uh sensibilities and questions and perspectives in clinical research right now. I know it's totally weird. (laughs) No, it's so important. That's vitally important work. Yeah. That's just so not what, you know, I expected to do at all. But that seems to be a trend or a pattern for you in your, in your trajectory. So much dexterity. And I think it's brave. It's exciting to, move in new directions from project to project. And 
absolutely bringing a historical perspective, wide medical history in clinical spaces, in clinical studies is so exciting. Wow. I just, I can't wait. I can't wait for what's next. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So I'm doing that, the, this new work and it, it's a big learning curve, but it, it is interesting. Thank you so much for joining us, Sandy. We're really excited to share this episode with everyone. Thank you for having me. This was a wonderful discussion and I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Um, I hope I was able to give a window into what my book and my work is about. You did and it was a pleasure. Pleasure for me too. Thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript. Please join us again next time. Bye-bye.